When you build a building, if you're not paying attention to the embodied carbon, no matter what you do the day you turn on the lights, you've literally got 30 years worth of carbon emissions equivalent in just building the building if you don't build it thoughtfully. You got to have all of these things in mind, which is I got to build my new buildings with low embodied carbon. I've got to think about my waste streams. I got to think about my retrofits. And then, of course, I have to think about how I operate that building once it's up and running. Welcome back to Sustainability Street, CPE's podcast on the intersection of commercial real estate and the world we live in. I'm your host, Therese Fitzgerald. And for this episode, I interviewed CBRE's Rob Bernard. Bernard has a huge job at CBRE. In addition to being the chief sustainability officer for a company with 500 plus offices, he is guiding owners and occupiers in more than 100 countries towards their targets as senior VP of client sustainability solutions. But Bernard is a big picture thinker. And having spent 15 years with Microsoft, he has a lot to say about how AI, data, and computing can unlock answers to complex environmental questions. Let's get started. Okay, Rabo, thank you for joining me today on Sustainability Street. Thank you so much for inviting me to the discussion. So, Rob, commercial real estate was not your first love. Uh, Tell us about your road to the industry. Well, it actually turns out my first job, my first career was in construction. Uh, Out of college, I did some construction, and I'm actually with a friend of mine. We started a a real estate company, Uh, but then sort of my career path changed, and then I ended up at uh, Microsoft, where I was developing software for a while. And that led me to doing sustainability at Microsoft. And one of our first projects there, we did something which was called 88 Acres, which is how do you take, you know, Microsoft's real estate around the world and digitize it? You know, we were gathering 500 million data points a day across all these systems and drive efficiency at scale. And then ultimately that led to how do we actually decarbonize it? So I did that for a few years, ended up uh, after I left Microsoft, I did some private equity work. But uh, when I heard about this role at CBRE um, just about eight, nine months ago, when I uh, became aware of it, I was super excited about the opportunity to get back into sort of looking at what's the intersection of technology, sustainability, and real estate to think about how do you decarbonize the entire built industry. And in light of those experiences, um, how have you been putting your imprint on CBRE? Interesting question. I think it's it's less about, you know, whether it's me or somebody else in this role and the imprint we would put on it, but then rather, how do we align around on that customer needs, right? Like most people may know this already, but for those who don't, you know, 40% of greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings, about 28% from commercial real estate, you know, depending on what data you read. And so the reality is if we're going to solve and address climate change at scale, we have to decarbonize the built environment at scale and commercial real estate has to be at the heart of that. So, you know, like I said, whether it's me or somebody else in this role, it's really about how do we actually get after that situation? And then how do you take the assets that a company like CBRE has and leverage them to accelerate that end game? So you've been in real estate for six months now. Give us your assessment of the industry's sustainability efforts and progress overall. 
You know, it's really interesting. I think in many ways it reminds me of the technology sector when I first started there, which is, you know, right before the dot-com bubble in some ways, which is there's a lot of innovation happening simultaneously. Some of it's starting to scale. Much of it is not. It's too early to know which business models and which technologies will emerge as the winners, right? So companies, whether it's, you know, CBRE or our clients or our competitors are making different kinds of bets. But what is exciting where when I first started working in this stuff, so to circa 2010, 11, 12, there were a handful of companies that you could go engage with to go try to attack this issue. There are now literally thousands. And so what we're going to get is a filtering out of this noise. And we're going to get a couple of companies who are going to scale and come through the other side, which I'm very confident will transform the way energy is used in real estate, how carbon is, and maybe we'll get to this today, embodied carbon in buildings, all that stuff will start to emerge. And it's happening a lot faster, frankly, than the, the, the dot-com kind of era. I have read that you've said real estate needs to move faster towards its goals. What will it take to speed things up? I think it's the intersection of a couple of things, right? What are tenants doing on the demand side? What are landlords doing? What are banks doing, right? Like if banks decide to offer different terms for financing, that's going to accelerate the pace at which landlords are going to be inclined to ask. If at the same time, tenants are putting pressure on the landlords to do things, that'll accelerate pace. Like to me, all of this stuff is like whole systems, interconnected systems, which is if I'm a landlord and I want to decarbonize, but I'm in a market where I can't get clean energy readily and I can't easily put enough power on my rooftop, I've got other constraints. So there are these sort of technology factors, which you talked about just a few minutes ago around like, what are the emerging technology trends and what's going to happen? Then there are the sort of financial markets, but then there's also the physical infrastructure requirements. And all of those things have to come together to really get the flywheel of innovation and acceleration going at scale. So I think um, that's what's going to drive sort of massive and rapid adoption is that intersection of innovation, financial markets, behavior change. Now let's talk about CBRE's goals and progress. Uh, the company has pledged to be net zero by 2040. Uh, what are the, the key benchmarks? Uh, where are you making meaningful progress? And what goals are more aspirational right now? So I think all the goals that almost all companies have, by definition, are aspirational. Let's start with, and we'll talk about the different scopes, but for people who may not be familiar with it, there's sort of scope one, scope two, scope three. And scope three is sort of where most companies, including ours, biggest carbon footprint is. And that's sort of, in our case, all the buildings that we manage for our clients where we don't control the energy selection, we don't, right, but yet we're still accountable because we're managing this in some way, right? And so one of the challenges is to decarbonize our footprint all the supply chains and all the stuff we're dependent on also need to decarbonize theirs. Now, we absolutely can influence that and in how we approach it, and we're working hard to go do that. And many of our clients have made commitments that we then get to help them go execute, right? And then when we think about our own energy sourcing, you know, we've got a commitment that by 2025 for the CBRE's offices, so the space where, like I'm sitting today in the spaces we occupy, how do we get rid of carbon in those areas? And then we sort of got let's call it like, think about fuel, fuel types. Like we pump fuel into our trucks. So we have a goal there to say, well, 
let's get rid of internal combustion engine vehicles and transform those into electric vehicles by 2035. And so we're on our way down that path and we have an annual target. We've actually hit that annual target and we're getting more, right? And now back to what we were talking about before, we're also dependent on the truck manufacturers to have enough capacity because everybody else is also now in line to get those trucks. So there's this interplay of, I think we're doing very well. We absolutely can do more and we will do more. And there's all these interdependencies. So how are we pushing both directly on things like we're going to buy more efficient vehicles and buy more clean energy, but then how do we think about influencing the entire industry so that our clients can buy more clean energy? Yeah, it's a huge undertaking for the industry. So AI and data are on everyone's mind. Um, What can they do for sustainability? And tell us about some of the investments CBRE is making in that area. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Like, I think it's a little bit premature for us to talk about specifically what CBRE is doing in AI today. You know, stay tuned on that kind of stuff. But if we look at AI overall, one, I think um, it's certainly a total transformation of how technology will evolve very, very quickly. But I think today there's a lot of confusion and hype on AI because a lot of it is driven by how good is the data set that you have that you're going to train your AI. So I think one of the things that we're very fortunate, CBRE manages several billion square feet of real estate around the world. So we have a very robust set of data. Now the question is, literally, what are the questions that we want to ask of the data? And then what are the tools that have been developed or need to be developed where we can go develop them or partner with people to go say, okay, what would be like the theoretical optimum energy efficiency level for a given space in a given climate with a given use case of a given age, right? Like those are the kinds of questions we will be able to answer once we get the engines trained and we think about it. Like that's where it becomes really powerful. It's how do you leverage that? technology and how do you think about what questions you want to ask it? I think data and quality data have been stressed in real estate for some time, but it sounds like AI will take the power of data to a whole new level. When we think about the role of data, I think it's coupled with what do you do with that data and how do you think about computing? So there's first, like, who gets access to what data and how do you share that data and how do you anonymize it, but still give everybody the benefit so that If you want to ask the question, how does my building compare to everybody else's? Well, then you have to be willing to share the data about your building and other people have to have done the same. Otherwise, you don't have much to go benchmark against, right? And then there's the issue of we've got, you know, proliferation of sensors and data. And so if you get in hundreds of millions of points of data, what are you doing and how much of that are you computing at the central node in a cloud? But then also, what is it that you can do at the edge and let the building or thermostat? And so I kind of think that that's an evolution that's going to happen, and it's starting to happen, which is, okay, what's, where's intelligence happening? There's this thing called computing at the edge. How does all that happen? And then I sort of jump over and I go, well, that's the same thing that's happening with energy. Like, let's look at the history of computing, where you have these big mainframes, right? And that's where everything was done. And then you sort of went to the PC, and everything was done at the PC. Not everything, but many things were done at the PC. And now you've got this thing where you have ubiquitous computing, including like literally on my watch, right? And so we've got to get to the same place with energy and building data where we're traversing and optimizing where this computing and data gets processed. So, you know, 
I'm going to, hey, there's a lot of wind blowing right now. I'm going to charge up all the vehicles in my parking lot, but those things are bi-directional. And I, maybe I've got some sort of model with my employees where I'm literally going to pay them if they've decided to opt in so that when the wind stops blowing and the price of energy doubles and the grid gets stressed, I can start pulling energy literally from the parking lot because my vehicle has intelligence, my building has intelligence, the grid has intelligence, and I'm also computing in the cloud. Like that's where data and compute become essential to solve this problem because we're only going to get so far by doing things like, which are great, but like things like rooftop solar. So is there still a critical role for human innovation and human creativity? Oh, absolutely. But now let's, let's sort of play this out. Which, this is where I get super excited, you know, this intersection of technology and innovation and sustainability in buildings. It's like, okay, so we asked the question, which is like, what's the theoretical maximum efficiency for my office space and location acts, right? And then you go, okay, so the building I'm in is 25 years old. So based on that age, right, we know from scouring across literally the planet that your building should be at X kilowatt hours per square foot for the type of use you do. And then you can go, okay, so what's that gap? Good. Okay, so I need to do some retrofits. What are the most effective retrofits I can do for the least capital expense? And what will be my return? And what will that do to my kilowatt hour per square foot? And then you, now you can start to unpack it because you're now asking the AI machines to basically scour all the projects that exist around the world and go, oh, well, you want to think about embodied carving, which we haven't talked about yet, which is like, what kind of wallboard am I going to use? What kind of ballast am I going to use? What kind of lighting infrastructure? What kind of glass am I going to use? And you, you can go down the road, right? And so that's where it gets super, super exciting because things that take hundreds of hours manually can happen almost instantaneously. That's when, that's when we're going to unlock a lot of creativity. Let's get back to talking about CBRE. In addition to being Chief Sustainability Officer, you were also Senior VP of Client Sustainability Solutions. What are the principal ways in which CBRE is helping owners and helping occupiers with their sustainability goals? In some ways, this is what's really interesting about my role, which is addressing it for clients is the same as addressing it for ourselves in some ways, because we are literally walking in the same shoes as our clients. We have over 500 offices around the world. I mentioned earlier, we're trying to decarbonize our fleet because we've got a fleet of vehicles. We're trying to decarbonize our energy supply. We're trying to decarbonize when we fit up our new space. We're thinking about circularity and waste streams. We're thinking about water and water stress regions, right? We're thinking about different kinds of aspects that our clients are also thinking about and the contracts that we want for energy and all that kind of stuff. So we're like a microcosm of our customers. So when I think about the customers and I've now met with quite a large number of customers, the stories they are telling us about their challenges feel very, very familiar to us. Oh, and then by the way, in this world of increasing complexity is not only do I have to do these things, I have to report them. And the number of stakeholders I have is not just growing linearly, it's literally exploding almost logarithmically. Right? And then there's a the future of like, well, what's the SEC going to do? And is it going to get passed or is it not going to get passed? And what's happening in Europe with regulations in Europe? What's happening in APAC? All these things that we were doing for ourselves, we're also helping our clients navigate, right? So we really think about like, to your question specifically, like, well, what are we doing for owners and occupiers? It's like having a framework which says, we will simplify this complexity for you. 
right? What's your blueprint and how do you actually think about all the things you want to go do? Who are your stakeholders and what's the compliance and regulatory work? What are the projects we want to get after to get more efficiency in the space? And then how do you think about accelerating decarbonization at scale across all these other things, right? And how do we do this in a repeatable manner so that no matter where the client is located and what their size is, we've got a programmatic approach to really help them to do that. How big of a team do you have to tackle all that? So this is very similar to, I think, a lot of things in most businesses, which is what percentage of most people's jobs is sustainability versus how big is the sustainability team, you know? Having been at this now for close to 15 years, the unlocking of potential happens when more and more people think about sustainability as core to what they go do. And so there I'd say they're on the magnitude order of hundreds and literally thousands of people around CBRE who are actively working on sustainability. And my job is to say, how do we create the right governance model and right orchestration to unlock their potential to go solve these problems for clients at scale? It's all hands on deck when it comes to sustainability. So how are you helping owners and occupiers work together on sustainability since neither can achieve their goals alone? It is literally an ecosystem's challenge, right? Which is how does one company interact with the other company who then interacts with another set of companies, right? So our approach has to be Look, whether you're a tenant or an owner or an occupier, you have a dependency on the other side, unless you're literally owning your own buildings and you're you're both, right? So the goal has to be to create the right vehicles so that if I'm a tenant, I can think about something like green leases as, as an example. How do my leases evolve? Because leases that you saw five years ago, more than likely than not, didn't contemplate this reality, right? If I'm the landlord, I got the same issue on the other side. So our job is to say, look, we understand the landlord perspective. We understand the tenant perspective. How do we create a shared outcome? Because the shared outcome goal is we have to decarbonize the built environment. Right? Now you have to start getting into, depending on the circumstance and where you are geographically and what the lease terms and contracts are, what's the nuances between who's spending the capital, who's getting the benefit, how does that balance work? And that's where a lot of the hard work comes in, but that's why like our brokers and others are really focused on what are the green lease provisions and do we have a clear roadmap to say, I'm going to go from X impact to Y impact over the term of my occupancy. How about embodied carbon? You mentioned it a couple of times. What are some of your programs in that area? I mean, there's two things. One is about efficiency of the space that you're building, right? Whether you're retrofitting it or building new. And then the other is, how is material silence developing? So if you took concrete and steel, 15% plus or minus the greenhouse gas emissions come from those two materials, right? Literally, if concrete or steel were a country, it would be in the top, I think, top five of emission-emitting countries in the world. Okay. So we got to think about how do we accelerate our sourcing of low to zero carbon materials. That's one. Then, of course, is how do you design for minimal waste? And then how do you make sure that that waste has an off-taker so that it's actually not going to a landfill, it's going back into a process to feed into creating new raw materials, right? So there's a circularity component, there's embodied carbon component of it. And 
Like the scale is, is just massive. And then the other thing is we have to think about as we think about retrofitting spaces, how do we think about that wasting and what you do, right? Like one of the stats I read, and I think it's true, is you know, what percentage of buildings that will exist in the year 2050 have already been built? And the answer is, at least according to this research, that I read, 80%. Now, the other counter-argument to that is when you build a building, if you're not paying attention to the embodied carbon, no matter what you do the day you turn on the lights, you've literally got 30 years worth of carbon emissions equivalent in just building the building if you don't build it thoughtfully. So it's like, you got to have all of these things in mind, which is I got to build my new buildings with low embodied carbon. I've got to think about my waste streams. I got to think about my retrofits. And then of course, I have to think about how I operate that building once it's up and running. But embodied carbon is a huge issue that I think companies are just starting to wake up to. Yeah, definitely. All right, Rob. Well, thanks very much. I have one last question for you. What are you reading or listening to these days when it comes to sustainability or business or for pleasure? Great question. I think one thing that I'm super interested in right now is we are literally a society going through the combination of an infrastructure reinvention, right? Because we got to figure out how to get decarbonized energy at scale. Mm-hmm. And we're also going through another type of industrial revolution with the advent of AI, right? So when we look back, you know, I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way, I'm almost done with this great book by Stephen Ambrose about building the transcontinental railroad and how that literally transformed the United States and our history. You know, and we're going back to sort of right around, right after the Civil War. And it's just really interesting to see it was a combination of new technologies that hadn't been built new ways of discovery and surveying. And there was all this innovation that happened on the back of trying to basically connect the coasts. And so there's just a lot to learn there from how do you build infrastructure out and what kind of risks the market had to take? How did the economics play out? And what were the knock-on effects of actually building a transcontinental railroad, right? So I think I'm just find that one, that is something I'm reading right now for enjoyment because I just think it's it's super fascinating portion of our history that frankly I don't think I appreciate it enough, but I think it can inform us as we start to think about how do we change the infrastructure on which we rely on. Okay, Rob, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, this is a great conversation and I look forward to hopefully speaking again. And thank you listeners for joining me on Sustainability Street. If you have any questions about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to me at therese.fitzgerald at cpe-mhn.com. Bye for now. <laughs>